Well, this will be a special edition of the Paul Truesdale podcast. You will hear a discussion between Paul Truesdale and Paul Truesdale. It's not one of those situations of me, myself, and I. It's me, Paul Grant Truesdale, and Paul Grant Truesdale II, the vice president of our companies and the head of technology. Paul and I discuss things because we are forecasters more than anything else. And so what I want to do is give you an idea of what we talk about literally every single day. But today, what we did, is we were mic'd up and we record a lot of our sessions for clients and that will be available more and more to clients as we go along. But I want to give you just a quick idea. This is about 30 minutes long, the actual discussion that he and I have. We've edited a little bit of it. For example, one place I coughed and uh, needed to clear my throat. So that's been edited out. But other than that, this is the actual free-flowing discussions that we have in the office. We're going to talk about the uh, shipping situation. We're going to talk a little bit about the container cargo stuff. We're going to talk about the CCC camps during World War, uh, between World War I and World War II, the Great Depression. We're going to talk about Jack Welch and GE, kind of connect all these dots. That's what we do really, really well. So I would encourage you to uh, set aside time to listen to this. If you are in your car, it's going to be about a 30-minute drive. Uh, great, we got something for you. If you're home, get up and walk around, take a walk and enjoy this. What do you say we get started? This is the Paul Truesdale Podcast. Due to our extensive holdings, that of our clients and your host, you should assume that we have a position in all companies discussed and that a conflict of interest exists. Yeah. The information presented is provided for informational purposes. And now, Paul Truesdell. So I'm about to uh, play this and uh, drop this in here. I want you to absolutely unequivocally understand that, yeah, I have a conflict of interest in any company that we talk about because of my personal holdings, those of our clients, our company, and uh, we're going to go and take a GE to the woodshed. I'm not taking the current administration in, but the past administrations have just been a disaster. So again, we don't short stocks. We don't, uh, we don't do that. So we are a fundamental investment company and we do individual securities, but I want you to understand, remember, when we talk about a company, there's a 99.999% chance that we're going to own it. With that, let's get started. Now, before we get started, understand that I had a microphone failure during the recording, but we want to go ahead and use it anyways. So bear with, things happen, but we thought the discussion was timely enough and we wanted to use it this afternoon at five o'clock. With that, here we go. Okay, so we were talking about the Long Beach and Los Angeles container situation, and we've talked extensively about that. We've talked about how there is a disconnect between federal, state, and local regulation. We've talked about how these shipping companies are not coordinated with ground, long-haul, rail, even air. We've talked about OSHA. We've talked about the restrictions on the number of hours you can drive. We've talked about how these containers, when they're stacked more than too high in one city, you get a fine. What's the solution? Well, at this point, the numbers I saw were something around a half million containers are sitting on somewhere around 130 to 150 ships. The solution now just has to be the kitchen sink. Like there's no one solution for any of this anymore. And the problem is, is the problem is so large that once you solve one problem, another bottleneck is going to appear almost immediately. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, is a, it is a total failure. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, I'm reminded of uh, some of the, what do you call it? Uh, 
some of the videos in the aftermath of 9-11 when I think it was George Bush or somebody else said that, oh, it was a failure in imagination. At this point, the only defense from some of these people could be that it is a failure of imagination to see the domino effect of how badly this could get out of hand. Because, yeah, I mean, the simple things like, like Long Beach and their, their container stacking restriction that, um, uh, that, uh, that tech CEO, the logistics CEO pointed out, I don't remember his name, he pointed that out, and Long Beach was like, oh, well, and they did it within a couple days of the city council or somebody. So what we're talking about is in, in on the West Coast, specifically in California, the two major ports are Los Angeles and Long Beach. And Long Beach City Council passed many years ago an ordinance that if you have containers stacked more than too high, you get a big penalty. Yes. The problem is there is no more ground space. Now, the problem with that is people in Marion County or, let's say, in rural Hillsboro or in some other area on the panhandle where you go, well, well, there's lots of space. You see farms. They don't have that in Los Angeles. No. L actual land space, which is the reason why you go up, is at a premium. Absolutely. So if you have currently 500,000 containers sitting on, what, 180 ships now? Uh, it's, I think it's between 130 and 150. I'm not totally sure what the... Uh total numbers. It changes every day though. But a massive number of ships, right? Uh, yeah, huge. To the point where one caught on fire and we are... Some containers on a ship caught on fire. The ship itself didn't. Which we don't know. We don't know this, but it could be lithium batteries. It could be any number of things that yeah, it, caused that. And I think people anything. should realize there's a lot of cargo out there that is dated. Could be volatile. Yeah. Could be very volatile. But the, but the container stacking thing is interesting. So the city council changes it. And, and you know, I understand why they did it because it's ugly. It's ugly, absolutely. You know, so if you don't need it, then you know, put a restriction in place. But the problem is, is you know, the it's the the incentive structure that comes in when something like that happens. So now you have a situation where they would they would lift this because apparently nobody had brought this to their attention, or at least not in a serious way. So they lift it temporarily, but now the issue is they don't have these 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 uh, shipping yards, these uh, container yards that ha warehouse these things for distribution. They don't have the cranes to stack them more than two or three high because it logically requires special cranes to lift a heavy container to stack them. You know, it's just common sense. Why would you build a crane to stack something five, six, seven high when that's just a waste of money? When you can't do it, can't exactly. Do it. And so, cranes are not mobile where you can just move them around like... Well, I think the the majority of the cranes that they have on these yards are basically like, they, they look like big cher uh, cherry pickers. They, have, they just have a big extendable arm and they just, they lift them and there's only, some, there's only so much length that they have right. available. And they're cheaper and they're more mobile versus when you're stacking them more than two or three high now you're in a situation where you know you need quite a bit of extra infrastructure to be able to accommodate that. Right. So, so they so don't have it. So now you're like, okay, now we're at the next problem. How do we solve this? You know, fortunately, that guy uh, did in his giant Twitter thread explain kind of like a very a very logical series of steps that the that you need to do not just to get out of this problem, but are also good for future proofing these ports because. These ports and their infrastructure, they, you know, they date back to a time before anybody alive even remembers. And you know, those cities have totally grown up around them. And you know, fundamentally, his idea is pretty simple. Build a dedicated rail line out of the city, out somewhere in the middle of nowhere, where land is cheap. Take 1,000 or 2,000 acres and build a giant rail container distribution facility where you can get the trucks out there. It's easy. You don't have all this congestion of driving these trucks into the cities. 
and then you can have a big rail yard. So then you can link them up with the existing rail systems and all that stuff isn't happening inside of the LA rail yards as well and clogging all that up. So you're freeing up valuable real estate and you're getting all this ugliness and, uh, and transportation nightmare and getting it out of the city. So basically those ports could effectively be um, unstacked from ship, put on trains, stacked from train back onto ship. I mean, just very quickly. So they only do a very small number of things. Now that my, my, the thing I was thinking about is I wonder if that's even possible with the contracts that they have with the longshoremen and all the special things and, and carve-outs that different um, unions have, I wonder if that's even, even legally tenable to even achieve. Because for all I know, you know, longshoremen might be required to touch those things at every step of the thing and there's not enough of them to in institute a system like this. So there's a lot of systemic and also, uh, there's a lot of systemic problems everywhere you look. But also then, my God, I mean, the, the, the domino effect that's at play. I mean, they're talking about not enough trucks, not enough trailers, not enough containers, not enough trains. It's like, how do you, how do you solve this in a reasonable time? And, and on top of that, like, the ships aren't stopping. They're continuing to fill containers as much as they are available and people want to get stuff here. So it's not like, it's not like they can just pause it. You mentioned when we were talking and we had our in-depth discussion and we were talking, you were talking about, and I, I lost the phrase, when it becomes untenable financially, your contract is null and void. What was that term? Cause I just, For, uh, I mean, yeah. What, I, I have yeah, a brain lock right now. Yeah. So a force majeure event. Yeah. And my thinking was, I wonder how far along the financial unsustainability of these shipping these containers is at where they will have to declare some type of force majeure event and basically raid their insurance policies because the cost to move each of these containers ballooned above what they even have the funds for. Because apparently the, the city and the state and the feds are threatening, or maybe they have, I don't know, uh, to institute like fines on these ships for loitering, which is a joke because these ships can't go anywhere else because yeah. of how big the ports are. And some of these ships are specifically designed for these ports. So here's, here's I always like to put things in terms that we talk on a different level. So force majeure and then, you know, we're going to find people. Think of it like this. You want to go to a concert and the city has allowed from the front door where the tickets are being sold. This is the only place where you can get tickets, you have to stand in line, okay? It's like Apple's got a new phone and everybody stood in line. So you have to get tickets there. The line goes down the sidewalk and then down the side of a building. When we were at in San Francisco for WWDC many years ago, remember the line went down the alley and around. Oh, yeah. And yeah, so that, that, those were great days. But the thing you didn't see was the line went into the building and around and around, snaked around and up the escalator and around and around and around. And That's up. just, that was just like, the outside, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's so amazing how many people you can fit in a room when they're spread out versus a single file line. So when you are going to find the ship, the, the guys who are who are the ships for not getting the cargo off, it's like saying, "Here's our concert hall. There's or our big auditorium. You only can have ten thousand people in here. That's the that's the fire code says ten thousand. So you had ten thousand standing in line and your your workers. So it has to go outside. And I'll, I'll give you a temporary permit to stand on the sidewalk. But then I'm going to come by and say, um, you know what? If you all don't get tickets within the next 30 minutes and get out of here, I'm going to find you for loitering and blocking a sidewalk. It's, that is the same convoluted logic that's out there. Mm -hmm. Now, people don't disperse, so now the cops come in and they start putting these people in jail. You're walking to work yeah. and you're caught up 
because everybody there is going to go to jail. I'm, I'm, I've got to go to work. I don't even work. I have to work next door. You're caught up. And to give you an example of that in real life, January 6th, you had people who have been arrested and accused of being part of the ruckus at the Capitol who yeah. were literally on vacation, who were literally sightseeing, who were literally going to work, yeah, who were caught up in this. Because their cell phone pinged their the cell, cell towers pinged. in the area. Yeah. And you wonder why the country is getting fed up. Janet Yellen saying, there's no real inflation. Oh, it's not a big deal. And it's now at a 30-year high. Yeah. Produce, producer price inflation, 8.6%. Oh, it's not a big deal. It's like, that's almost 10%. That is like South Africa, Lebanon tiers of like ins insanity right there. You know, I talked about in a, in a prior podcast, I talked about, I can solve this problem. And, and I basically did my simple shaggy dog. You got to get it off the ships and you've got to get it a straight run to some area where you have lots of land, where you can, you can stage it and get it out. That's, it's called hub and spoke. And it's not just one hub, it's not one spoke, it's a multi-situation. That's why you have rail yards. I, I, For the life of me, I have no idea why, where's the giant rail yards out there? Where is, when you elect a man or woman someday as president of the United States, you put them in there to be a temporary dictator. When it hits the fan, somebody has to be responsible. It's hit the fan. Where's Biden? Oh, you know, all they're gonna do is spend money, which will go in the pockets of people who are connected. This thing is something I know you and I could solve within, well, we could solve it in 24 hours and we could probably, well, we couldn't solve it. If we had it. the authority, we could have it done within a, within six months. You couldn't solve it in 24 hours, but you could have a good plan put together. You, and that's, and that's what I'm and, saying. And, and that's what we were talking about is, is, you know, if this was 1960s America and you had some crazy thing like this happen for some unknown reason or another, you know, aside from the fact that something like this wouldn't have happened back then because people were more competent at these companies and they would have raised red flags when they saw, oh crap, we have two container ships sitting out here for X number of days longer than normal. Like we need to speed this up and solve this problem because the domino effect of this could be huge. Instead, they waited until there's like over a hundred. Like, yeah, good luck. But, but the point being is, you know, what would have happened back then? Well, different people, you know, uh, different authorities ahead of different tra traffic and transportation organizations, a representative from the White House potentially, um, if not, you know, somebody more important than that, heads of major shipping companies and trucking companies and logistics and distribution. They would all come together and have some type of summit someplace and they would bring everybody that was necessary to hammer out a plan to solve this so they could be so they could work in a coordinated fashion and and, and actually get some results. Because the problem is, is you're at logistical issues with just basic equipment. Like I said, trucks, trailers, train car capacity, uh, longshoremen, um, and everything in between. So, you know, the, the amount of coordination that has to take place to solve this in earnest is hellacious. And, you know, it would require a, a meeting of the minds and coordination of that kind of level. And then on top of it, of course, naturally, corruption must always win the day and the government would have to hand out some amount of subsidies to cover everybody's um, bottom line. But you could have it solved in days or at least, you know, have a plan together and you'd start to see results. Instead, everybody just keeps passing the buck because everybody in charge is just political. You don't have CEOs of companies anymore that sit back and go, yeah, that's not a good idea. I actually, I, I'm, I'm more than just a political operator. I, I understand the logistics of the company and that's bad. You have, you, you don't have those people anymore. So instead, Instead, you know, it's just, it's, it myopia wins the day on this one and everybody's focused on themselves and, 
And wh where were the people bringing this up to other people who should have more authority? Did it just not happen? I mean, it's just the, the number of like systemic failures and lack, people lacking the, I don't know. Common sense, because yeah. as you said, we have so many people who have risen the ranks of bureaucracy. GE, GE is basically dead. They're gonna split it into three companies. I mean, <laughs> if anything, this is a seminal moment of the nation. General Electric was the manufacturing bowels of the, I mean, this was it. It's like U.S. Steel when U.S. Steel fell apart. I can tell you when I saw that there, well, yesterday, I literally, I just, I was thrown back in my chair like, holy cow, this is, this is the straw that broke the camel's back to me. And we've talked about this. You have people who have risen to the ranks. They didn't, they never, they never worked with their hands. Now, I want to say a well, couple. More importantly, think about most people with a business management degree in this country who do run these companies. What, what they're all going to be probably older than me and younger than you. What have they all learned? They've learned to set up their little shrine and worship at the altar of Jack Welsh. Oh, Jack Welsh meanwhile, is Jack Welsh, crap on the face here. Meanwhile, Jack Welsh is the reason GE is now absolutely in, effectively insolvent and is being split up into multiple companies. And, because... and this is a quick sidebar before you continue on that. Remember years ago, I was screaming, why did they get into healthcare? Why did they buy long-term care? Remember, I put together the class action against Penn Treaty. Penn Treaty is insolvent. State of Pennsylvania and other states have to bail it out. And then, but what did GE do? GE went out and started buying all these companies. They were buying it. Oh, we're going to make money. And I said, you can not make money on it. The way it were these long-term care policies were fundamentally designed, they were flawed. That's one of the major reasons why this thing is taking place. Well, the, the, well it's part of it. Them, it, the, the key is, is it's not healthcare. Healthcare is a big business and it's very profitable for them. That's why one of the big, one of the business units they're spinning out is healthcare. Well, healthcare, the, in, 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 but separate that from that long-term care. Component. No, it's financial services. Right. They they lost their shirt in financial services. They played in the game. They didn't understand. You know, there is. GE is in and of itself a 10 hour long discussion. But the fundamental issue is when you sell off unprofitable business units because you don't understand how they integrate with the rest of your business operations, when you chop every little piece of profit you can out of the business to boost your profit margin and to boost your stock price for 30 years, and you take a totally vertically and horizontally integrated company and only have the most delicious little morsels, but they rely on things that are now totally beyond your control and all of a sudden fall apart when you don't have these, these, these system effects that you don't understand. And um, on top of that, you know, having all these, this vast, like I said, horizontally and vertically integrated company, people don't understand how finance used to work in corporate America. And the 1980s business philosophies have totally shredded any American competitiveness when it comes to a big business. People don't understand that these companies, uh, one, of, uh, one of the last companies that operates like this is, is Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway internally finances all of their transactions. Every single one of them, because they have the cash flow and they have they have the assets to do so. You know, they buy a company like Campbell's or whatever. They spend a horrible amount of money, but they're buying it because it has steady commodity-based cash flow that will never go away. And when they want to go buy something else, they can say, "Okay, we're going to take a couple billion from you and a couple billion from you and a couple billion from you." 
and some magic accounting later, they internally financed their own transaction to buy you know, some new company. And, and, and that's, I remember my dad did that with REA. He was always, one of the things that he pioneered not only was the overnight package, which is now FedEx and UPS, but dad was the one who said, we can make money on our cash float and was always internal, internal and preferred customer overnight paper. Yes, and, and that was for, for generally speaking, smaller businesses, oh, the, the big behemoths they did it themselves because they had enough separate business units that they could justify it. Smaller companies that don't have as much sprawl then worked as effectively like consortiums or, or, or syndicates to lend money to each other. Yeah, my and, dad would, for example, would lend tens of millions of dollars to a trucking company in Tulsa. And that company had a contract with his company for, let's say, medium load distribution. So they didn't have the company markings, but now they got caught in a pinch. But we know the float. So I mean, that's old-fashioned good business. They cut the banker out of it because the bank rates were just ridiculous. I mean, yes. insanely ridiculous. And to, to round off, yeah, and to round that that point off, I mean, people don't realize uh, most of the ships for for commercial shipping were owned by insurance companies in the, before the '80s, or at least a lot of them were. And why? Because where else are you going to put your money? I mean, you know, the market back then was, you know, crap. I mean, it, you know, there's only so many bonds you can justify buying. So these these people. Insurance companies used to actually invest in real business. And so you had a lot more real money moving around instead of it all being kind of top-down, basically everything's lent from the uh, fractional banking from the Federal Reserve. So the point is, is that there's a lot of, a lot of power that comes from these, these very large organizations that very, very smart people put together and basically, you know, fast forward, you know, 40 years and now you have effectively nothing left because they've on-demand supply chained the entire company and squeezed every last bit of profit out of it and it's done, it's dead. You know, people coming in and doing stacked ranking for employees and stuff like that. Like, you're never, your steady eddy, you know, employees who were the creative geniuses of the company are never going to stick around if they have to be peer reviewed and the bottom 10% of their, of their peer group just gets fired for not meeting the top 90%. I mean, it's just they create extremely toxic environments, and and that's GE is just is just a it's, it's a it's a basket of bad decisions on a permanent basis, effectively. And you know it is what it is. But but the point is is you know it's it's it seems as though the very visible systemic problems at companies like GE are just replicated in every business now as good business practice. And now you have major problems like this everywhere. You know, in 2008, everybody complained about oh the banks, they're out of control, they're criminals, they're this, they're that. The reality is, is likely the same problems plagued them. Executives well, chasing profit, employees incentivized to chase the same goal, and nobody stood back and said, hey, what we're doing is going to cause this giant domino effect. And anybody that did was basically told to shut up because we're making good money. I'm going to wrap this up with a couple quick comments. You know, my father, your grandfather, born in 1915. And unfortunately, he was born in a family that was well off. And because of the Depression, it got really tough. Um, gross point. Uh, the Fords and the Truesdells had children who the names lined up except for Mildred and uh, Edsel. But the, the names all lined up. I'm not to go into all the details is not important, but where did my dad wind up going for a while? My dad wound up being in the CCC camps. There was no jobs, but the federal government, at least you got to give Roosevelt credit. He knew that idle hands, idle people can cause a lot of problems. <coughs> <coughs> 
And what did he wind up doing? He got people to work. Now, my dad was in Upper Michigan. They were clearing roadways. They were doing fire breaks, cutting wood. But did they let these guys go into town to live? No, they had the housing there, doctors there. My dad wound up getting off the, we call it the chain gang, and he wound up running the general store. He wound up running the post office. He wound up putting that, that whole thing together. Then he wound up, you know, things got better and off he goes. Take it over to Long Beach. We talked about this the other night. You can hire all these people. Where are they going to live? When you have Hurricane Katrina, what do they do? They brought in, they brought in tons of tra uh, mobile homes and trailers. You have all these people. They've got to find a place to live. If you can take that burden off of them, where it's like, hey, gold rush. I'm done working. I'm here. The food, it's taken care of for me. You have more time to work. So what we know in gold rush, those guys are working, what, 18? Uh, they're working about uh, 16 hours a day, something yeah. like that. And they work seven days a week, and they do that for weeks and weeks on end, and they get a short little break. Well, that's what it's going to take to solve the Long Beach in Los Angeles cargo issue. We, there's a lot of, you've got to think not just the mechanical, the railroad. You can't just think, oh, the trucking. Oh, we got to take care of all the unions. Where's all the people going to, where are they going to live when they come in? So that's the thing that we do, I think, really, really well, because you can see where the opportunities are from an investment standpoint. But it doesn't make any difference. You, It always comes back to the fundamentals. And in this case, there are so many major basic industries in this country that are broken because everybody got focused on finance. And like you were saying before with GE, GE, let's say, has a subsidiary that makes very unique screws, very unique screws, threaded differently than other things. But if you can't get those screws, you can't make the car because it's made in China and your parts are sitting in the ocean, just like chips. You got car manufacturing shortages. Sometimes you have to lose money on this thing to make it up exactly. over here. Yeah, GE used to take raw billets of steel all the way to a produced product. And yeah, some units weren't profitable because they made, you know, the machine that makes the screws. Because they made, because internally they did a lot of this stuff. They made the unique task-specific machines, tool and die, and all that sort of stuff. Well, no tool and die, internal tool and die facility is ever going to be profitable. Captain Obvious, uh, at least alone by itself. Who's the market? Them and like maybe two other companies? Like, so not going to happen. The, under Jack, sell it, get rid of it. Exactly. And we take that profit, but over the course of the next five years, not only did we waste our profit, now we're in the hole and we have more dependencies. Yes, and key is dependencies. And, you know, the same thing goes for even some units that had some ability to financialize and, and create a profit from their from their activities. You know, his rule was if you weren't a top three in the industry, then they sold it off. So, I mean, if you have a, a, a small unit that creates, you know, I don't know, let's say maybe GE was making some weird industry-specific LED components that weren't very useful yet. Oh, we're not top three, so sell it. Now, you know, fast forward 10 years, that business unit could be, you know, your entire business by now. You just don't know. So it's it's a lack of foresight and it's, it's a lack of focus on now versus um, versus long-term planning and seeing how the domino effect can completely destroy your system. Well, let's get back to work. I can tell you absolutely unequivocally, beyond exclusion or reasonable doubt, every time you and I sit down and have these discussions on whatever the topic is we decide to focus on, it's always mind-boggling to me that how can we sit here and come up with the captain obvious solutions and you sit back and look at these people and go, what the hell's the matter with you? We know what the problem is, but we're not going to go there right now. It's just the same thing over and over. Sometimes you just leave, follow, or get the hell out of the way. Right now, there's not a, right now, the, the masses are saying, please lead. That's why they elected Trump. And then what happened again? Even he was afraid to take up the mantle and run with it. Yeah, Even lead. he was. Well, yeah. we're not going to go there. That's a whole other discussion. But No, I'm not going to. But, you know, lead, follow, or get out of the way. Um, everybody seems content to either follow or get out of the way and nobody's willing to lead so
that's why we're at where we're at. And along those lines, when Russia, when the USSR was falling apart, anybody that stood up and said, I'm in charge, guess what? They were, just because they said so. Those are kind of things that will happen in our country if we don't get a handle on stuff right away. This has been the Paul Truesdell Podcast. The Paul Truesdell Podcast is sponsored by nobody. Why? Because paid advertising chokes and corrupts free speech. Bandwidth, production, and hosting for the Paul Truesdell podcast provided by Fixed Cost Financial. The home of fixed cost investing. A true fiduciary-based registered investment advisor and manager. Visit FixedCostFinancial.com. That's FixedCostFinancial.com. This was a special edition of the Paul Truesdell podcast. We appreciate a kind word or two about the podcast, too family, friends, neighbors, relatives, and co-workers. And remember, Fixed Cost Financial is the home of fixed cost investing.